0: If you have your Bible, uh, turn to the book of Nehemiah chapter 9, Nehemiah chapter 9. We're several months uh, into our study uh, here in the book of Nehemiah and we're picking up steam here real quick and uh, hope to finish off the book here in the next uh, few weeks. Uh, but we've, uh, we've learned a lot thus far, at least I trust that you've learned a lot. If you haven't learned a lot, uh, I'm sorry, I've learned a tremendous amount. Uh, by walking you uh, through the book of Nehemiah, and I trust that that uh, will continue uh, today here in Nehemiah chapter nine. Well, you know we see it often in our contemporary culture, and many times, uh, in fact, we see it in prime time on HD HD TV, not HGTV, but HD TV. It's someone in the public eye who is uh, caught up in some kind of inappropriate behavior and. Uh, They were satisfied for a long time just to continue in that behavior until they were caught. And when they were caught, now they find themselves in a dilemma. Do they issue some sort of confession and hope that it simply blows over? Do they just simply ignore it? In fact, just Thursday of this week, we saw a former rising political star stand on the steps of a courthouse there in Greensboro and declare to us his sinfulness i would suggest to you this morning that uh, this type of damage control response to sin is rarely regarded as genuine repentance uh, rather I, I would submit to you this morning that it is simply managing consequences now maybe for you that motivation is common you you get caught in something and as a result of being caught, you begin to do damage control. And therefore, you reach the point of a quote-unquote confession. The the truth of the matter is this. For most of us here this morning, our secret sins will never be known by millions of people. Uh, That's one of the benefits of not being famous, right? Uh, Your sins won't be known. Nobody will find you out. Probably there aren't people that are watching your every move to see what you're doing, see what places you're going into, what things you're looking at on a computer, who you're spending your time with, how you're spending your money. For most of us, those secret sins that we commit will only matter to just a few small circle of people that we have relationships with. But if we understand biblical repentance and we understand biblical prayer, it really doesn't matter whether our secret sins are known to millions of people or whether they're just simply known to the God of the universe. Nehemiah chapter 9, I believe, provides for us a, a blueprint for prayer and repentance It's a blueprint that was drafted from the lives of people who, as we talked about two weeks ago, were experiencing tremendous revival in their midst. God was doing something in their lives, both individually and corporately, and they wanted change. And I say to you this morning, not only did they want change, but change was coming. Change was happening rapidly. But lasting change was only going to come when they experienced true repentance, And that same thing, I believe, is true for you and I this morning. Now, you'll remember the last time that we were together in Chapter 8, they were celebrating the Feast of Booths. That was very similar to what you and I know in our culture as uh, Thanksgiving. It was several days in which they celebrated and remembered their ancestors as they had wandered through the wilderness. It was a seven-day feast. You remember as we closed out our study last time that they were to gather sticks and they were to make booths and they were to either live on top of their houses or out somewhere from their house in these stick structures uh, that they built. This was to remind them how they had wandered as a people in the wilderness for, for 40 years because of their disobedience to God. But then he had been faithful to them, he had brought them back. Uh, to a a land that he had promised to them, and he had given them everything that they needed. He had indeed been faithful to them. And so now in chapter 9, the people are gathering together again, and as they gather together again, I think it's interesting that they're not necessarily gathering for a specific occasion. There's not necessarily a festival or a feast that they're gathering for. It would be like you and I, rather than coming here on a Sunday morning, you're here because it's Sunday, right? Right? and you're in the habit of coming together with other people to worship the God of the universe on Sunday, it would be as if all of a sudden we decided Tuesday we're going to meet. Tuesday morning at 10 o'clock here in the Panther Creek Auditorium. A group of us, a large group of us, just decided to meet. There wasn't Sunday. There was no particular occasion. We just felt the need to get together as a body of people. That's exactly what's happening here at the beginning of chapter 9. So look with me there in verse 1. David's read a lot of the text uh, to you this morning uh, as our worship uh, began, and so I'm not going to read to you all 37 of these verses, um, but we're going to focus on a few principles here as we work through it. This was the 24th day of the month, and the people gathered, and they were going to fast, which means, I think most of us understand, it means uh, they were not going to eat food. Some of us, uh, myself being chief amongst you, would do well to do that probably, a little bit more than we do. Not only were they fasting, not only were they not eating, but the text says that they were in sackcloth, literally like burlap, and they had dirt upon them. That was the way in which the ancients showed remorse, showed repentance. Verse 2, the descendants of Israel separated themselves from all foreigners. Most Bible scholars believe that this particular uh, sentence refers to... Those that had been uh, had come together in in relationships with heathen nations that they had been part of. Men that had married those wives. Ezra had begun removing some of that, but evidently there were still people who had uh, who had escaped that condemnation, and they were still involved in these relationships, which for them were were very inappropriate. And so they were removing themselves, separating themselves from these foreigners. And the end of verse 2 says, And they stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And while they stood in their place, they read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a fourth of the day. And for another fourth, they confessed and worshipped the Lord their God. And get this, they spent a quarter of their day. That would be, if you considered, 6 a.m. to 6 p.m. They spent three hours of their day. Uh, reading the Word of God, and then another three hours responding to the truth of the Word of God in that they confessed their sins. Let me ask you this as we get started this morning. When was the last time that you were that serious about reading the Word of God and not only reading the Word of God but responding to the Word of God in that way? it'd be interesting, and in our culture it's probably not acceptable for me to ask you to raise hands or stand up and give a testimony. I bet very few of us would be able to say, uh, just last week or just last month or even last year, I spent a quarter of the day reading God's Word and then another three hours responding to the truth that I had read. It's a rare thing in our culture, but that's what these people were doing. I think that they understood a truth that's found in the book of Romans chapter 2 and verse 4 which says this, or do you not think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God does what? It leads you to repentance. It's interesting that verse, it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance, So many times we think it's it's that tough hand of God. It's when he he really drills down on me. That's when I'll repent. Yet Paul said to the Romans, it is the kindness of God that leads us to repentance. It's when you remember who God is and what he's done and the sacrifice that was made for your sin and for my sin on the cross. That's what leads us to repentance. Let me make two observations as we continue. Number one, the confession of the people was linked once again, to the reading of God's word, we saw that in chapter 8. Isaiah fifty-five eleven says this, The word that I send forth, Isaiah said, does not return void. When God's word goes forward, it's powerful and it accomplishes exactly what God intended for it to do. In fact, Hebrews chapter 4 verses 11 and 12 says that the word of God is living and it's active and it's sharper than a two-edged sword. And what it does is it pierces right into our souls and it cuts out those things which violate the very holiness of God. It convicts us and cuts out sin and folly and rebellion and, quite frankly, for many of us, stupidity, the way that we continually do the things that we know we shouldn't do and find ourselves not doing the things that we know we should do. That's what the Word of God is capable of doing. Worship, in fact, involves the Word of God, for the Word of God reveals the God of the Word. A.W. Tozer said in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, the essence of of idolatry is the entertainment of thoughts about God that are unworthy of him. In other words, the better we know scriptures and we respond to them, the better we will know God and become like him. We have to be in the word of God. You have to know who God is. And so real prayer is always Bible-centered. It's always Bible-centered. It's a response to the truth of scripture. Now, maybe you're like many people this morning, and I bet there's a lot of us, and you've said this, I don't really know how to pray. Anybody ever thought that? Have you ever listened to somebody pray and you go, wow, where'd they get those words? I don't know how to talk like that. I don't even know what some of those words mean. Uh, quite frankly, sometimes people pray words that they don't mean. Uh, if you've ever heard people pray at, at a meal or something, very often I'll sit with somebody at a meal, I don't want to make anybody nervous, and I'll listen to them pray and I'll go, "I don't. what does that mean? I don't even know what that means. And I've caught myself at times with a person that, I'm, that, that I feel like I have a relationship with to say, when they get them pray, when you said that, what does that mean? Because I'm not even sure I understand what that means. Do you understand? And, you know, oftentimes we can trace it back to they heard their dad pray like that, they heard their mom pray like that. Some of you have grins on your face because you're going, I find myself doing that. You know, we pray for our meal and we pray in a certain way and we go, I'm not even sure I understand what that means. We strictly say words. Let me give you this little tip this morning. If you want to learn how to pray, you will never learn how to pray biblically. You'll never learn how to really get your heart in tune with God if you are not a student of the Word of God. Let me give you this example. When you read the Word of God, you're able to pray back the truth of the Word of God. Let me give you an example. Ephesians chapter 4, and verse 32. We taught all of our kids this when they were just little, we should probably continue to keep teaching them this, which says, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Now let me give you an example of how you pray that back. You read that truth in Scripture, and you say, God, I want to be kind to this person. This person I find it very difficult to be kind to. Help me to be kind to this person. Help me to be tender-hearted to this person or this group of people. Then there's this person in my life that I find it very difficult to forgive. Well, what did Paul say to the church at Ephesus? We're not only to be kind and tenderhearted, but we're to forgive. God, forgive me for not forgiving. I want to be a person that's forgiving because I recognize this. The end of the verse says, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you, God, thank you for forgiving me. Does that make sense to you? If you read the truth of the word of God and you pray it back, God, here's what you want me to be. Make me this kind of a person. God, here is uh, what is said about you. Thank you for being this kind of a God. You'll find that your prayer will be much more significant than you just simply praying words that you don't understand. I think one of the greatest uh, joys of prayer for me is listening to somebody who, who, who just came to Jesus they, they're new in their faith and to listen to them pray because they don't know all the right words to say they really look at him as Abba father daddy like the little kid that comes and jumps up on his dad's knee and he doesn't know all the technicalities but he knows that's my dad and and just communicates the heart that's how God wants us to talk to him And so the confession of the people, their prayer, was actually linked to their understanding of the word of God as the law was being read to them. Second observation, the confession was not only individualistic, but was also corporate. Notice that the people were not only acknowledging their sins, but they were acknowledging the sins of the previous generation. That's not really common in our culture today. Uh, We have a tendency, in fact, uh, to acknowledge in a way in which we blame our sin on the sins of the previous generation. Maybe for some of you, you're guilty of that this morning. You say things like this. Well, I'll tell you why I'm an angry man. The reason why I'm an angry man is because my dad was angry, and because he was angry, that's why I'm angry, and I can't help but being angry. If he wouldn't have been angry, and I wouldn't have grown up in his home, then I wouldn't be an angry person. That's the reason I'm angry. That's the reason I'm going to continue to be angry. It's the sins of the previous generation. Or how about this, I'm an alcoholic because it's been in my family. I can't help it. My grandfather was an alcoholic, my father was an alcoholic, therefore I'm an alcoholic. I hear men say this to me all the time. I'm a pathetic father. The reason I'm a pathetic father is because my dad was not a good father. He didn't tell me he loved me. He didn't throw the football with me out in the yard. He never, he never nurtured and cared for me, and that's why I'm a poor father. Or I've heard couples say things like, we have a bad marriage, and the reason why we have a bad marriage is because we both grew up in homes where our moms and dads really didn't have a good marriage, and that was all that was ever modeled for us, and that's why we have a bad marriage. You know, there are actually forms of psychiatry that encourage this behavior. And here's what's really sad. It's not just psychiatry in our secular culture. There are actually churches which encourage this behavior. You're bad, and you do what you do because of the home that you grew up in, because of the previous generation, and you just simply can't help it, so we'll just try to help you cope with it. Now, acknowledging the failure of previous generations, I believe, is helpful to understand why we are the way we are, but we must never use it to excuse our own sinful behavior. I trust if you're here this morning and you find yourself in that situation where you are constantly blaming your sinful, unbiblical behavior on past generations, that you will stop that, that you will repent of that, and you will begin to take responsibility for your own life, for who you are in Christ, and who God says you can be if you learn to live biblically. As I look out at you this morning, I look in the faces of some people and I know your stories and I wish I could just stop right now and and share at least one of them that I'm thinking of right at the moment. Somebody that grew up in a horrific environment and yet did not stay there. They didn't use that as an excuse. They realized who they were in Christ and who they could become because God had a purpose and a plan for their life. I encourage you to be that kind of a person. Well, when true repentance comes, we replace excuses with true confession. Like Isaiah the prophet cried out, you remember in Isaiah chapter 6 and verse 5, when he said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the king, the Lord of hosts. Isaiah got it. Isaiah understood that it wasn't anybody else's fault why he behaved the way that he did. He realized he was a sinful man. And that's the way to begin walking and moving in a new direction is to realize that you and you alone are responsible for your behavior. And so as David read, the Levites stood up, all of them, many of them, David uh, mispronounced many of those names, I won't go and try to correct him at this point. Uh, One of them, he said, Boonie, I think it's Bunny, actually, and I I don't know about that particular Levite, I don't know that I would have respected him if his name was Bunny, but... uh, David gave him the benefit of the doubt and pronounced it Bunai, I think, and that's really good. He'll thank you in heaven one day for that, that you didn't pronounce his name Bunny. Do you know that actually in this particular text, this is the largest, uh, the longest formal prayer that's recorded in the Bible? It's the longest formal prayer that's recorded in the Bible. And apparently, this prayer was actually prepared beforehand, most likely by the priest, by Ezra, and then this group of Levites actually recited the prayer. And I don't know exactly how they did it. I don't know if they all learned it, if they all had a script and they all stood up together and they read this prayer. I don't know if it was a responsive reading like we did earlier where one read this and then the next one. But it's really interesting how, how that happened. And they said, the end of verse 5, Arise, bless the Lord your God forever and ever. O oh, may your glorious name be blessed and exalted above all blessing and praise. Let me tell you, in the next 30 verses, we're going to cover them very quickly. In the next 30 verses, you're going to see these things as these people declare who God is in their prayer. Let me tell you what you're going to read. In fact, as you read in those next 30 verses, you're going to read this. Our God is a creator. He's a sustainer. He's our savior. He's a covenant maker. He's faithful. He's righteous. He's miraculous. He's glorious. He's powerful. He's a judge, he's a provider, he's a leader, he's our lawgiver. He's gracious, he's forgiving, he's merciful, he's slow to anger, he's abounding in steadfast love, he's enduring. He's our teacher, he's our conqueror, the giver of our children, the crusher of our enemies, the builder of our homes, the blesser of our businesses, the provider of our meals, the chastiser of our sin, the hearer of our prayer, the sender of our saviors, the answer to our hopes, the forgiver of our sins, the one who sends out prophets. He's great, he's mighty, he's awesome, he's righteous, and he's altogether perfect in all that he does All the time to everyone. That's God. That's who God is. Ah, It's about time some of you conservatives kind of really rouse up a little bit. I believe that when those Levites started reading this prayer and those people went, Yes, that's our God. That's the one that when our ancestors left that nation of Egypt and they headed out toward that Red Sea, and when they got to the Red Sea and they saw Pharaoh and his armies coming up behind him, that's the God that parted the Red Sea so that we could walk out our ancestors onto dry ground. That's the God, yes. That's the one that we've heard about. You see, real prayer always involves being God-focused being God-focused. It amazes me in a post-Christian world how often in times of tragedy, in times of despair or grief, we are called upon to pray. Don't you find that amazing? When some tragic event happens, the most liberal TV newsman will say, well, we all need to pray. I always ask myself, who are they actually praying to? You see, it matters who you pray to, doesn't it? I don't want to just offer up words to some God who's dead. Our God is alive. Our God has done all of these things in the past. He continues to do them in the present, and I believe he will continue to do them for all of eternity because he's God. You see, it matters who you pray to. It matters that you know and understand who God is. You need to be able to approach the sovereign God of the universe knowing that he is in control. And you know more than 50 times in this particular text uh, the word you, your, plus God, plus uh, Lord is mentioned in this particular text. More than 50 times. These people needed to understand who God was. Their prayer needed to be God-focused. And so as we go through the next 30 verses, and we won't, we'll see that he is the creator, that he called Abraham to do something very great when he said, I'm going to make a nation out of you. And there are going to be multitudes and multitudes of people that are going to come on behind you. He freed them from their oppressors, verse 9. He didn't leave the people in the dark, but on Mount Sinai, verse 13, he he gave them the law and he told them how they should live. And when they were in the desert and they were hungry and they were thirsty, uh, verse 15, he provided for them from heaven for their hunger. Verse 16, uh, transitional verse, but they, our fathers, acted arrogantly. They became stubborn and would not listen to your commands. They disobeyed what they clearly knew to be truth. And then for about the next 14 or 15 verses, the prayer goes on to acknowledge that. It basically gives a, 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 a Jewish history and says, this, this is what we did, and you did this, and then we didn't appreciate that, and we rebelled, we disobeyed, and then you did this, and then people came and they attacked us, and then you, you let us away from them, and then we did it again, and it's just up, down, up, down, up, down. It's interesting to know and to note in these verses that real prayer admits depravity. Real prayer admits depravity. Depravity is admitted. The bottom line is that if you don't think you're messed up, then you don't need God. You and I live in a culture, we live in a world where most of us believe we're really not that bad. We just need a little cleaning up, right? I mean, if you just just give me a little bit of a shower, just a little bit of a bath, you take this one little rough edge that I've got off of me, I'm basically a good person. Here's the truth of the matter. Uh, Jeremiah the prophet said that the heart is what? It's desperately wicked. Who can know it? That's why when anybody says to me, you don't know my heart, I go, oh, oh, yes, but I do know your heart. You see, Scripture says your heart is wicked. Your heart naturally is bent in that direction. I don't know about you, many of you, most of you probably, are a lot nicer than I am. Maybe you live your life better than I do. But I know at the very core, you really aren't that much different than I am. We are desperately wicked. We are depraved people. And apart from God, we deserve to spend eternity separated from him. Real prayer, real honest prayer admits our depravity, admits that we're messed up and we need God. That's why I love being here at Northwest, because we're trying to create a culture in our church body that says we all recognize we're messed up people. So if you came in here this morning and you said, man, if they only knew, oh no, we do know. We know you're about as messed up as we are. We, we do know that. And you may look really pretty this morning, you may be the most handsome guy here, you may have your act totally together on the outside, and you may think that you're giving us the... no, no, we know at the very core that you're messed up. And here's what people that are part of our body know and have walked with me on my journey for a period of time, guess what they know about me? They know I'm messed up too. And that's really Great. It's really great for my job security to know that you aren't going to wake up one day and go, wait a second, he's messed up. Because I've already told you, I'm messed up. But here's the thing, I'm seeking to live my life pleasing to God. I'm seeking to be holy, I'm seeking to walk with God, I'm seeking to be a, a man who understands prayer and a man who understands repentance. Because I recognize my dependence upon the God of the universe who loved me so much that he gave Jesus to be my savior, to wash me, to make me clean, and he gives me the ability through his spirit to be able to live the life that he says that I should live. And if I live that life, he says that I'll accomplish, I'll fulfill his, his purpose in my life, which is to bring him glory. But we're prone to suppress what we know to be truth. We're prone to suppress, really, how bad we are. If you're bored right now, go back to Romans 1, read Romans 1, and you'll find out that that's the truth. We're prone to suppress it. I'm not really that bad. This really isn't that wrong. Yes, it is. We're messed up people. And so, verse 32, they move this in this prayer into a transition where uh, they remind God of, who they are and of what they've done and how he's reacted to them, but they're basically begging him, my words, for a second chance. Now, now, let me ask you this as you read there in your Bible, verses 32 through 37. If you were asked to give a brief summary this morning of who you are at a job interview or, or maybe even Facebook started this new thing where they allowed you to write a paragraph about who you really are, let me ask you, would you use words that they used to describe themselves and the previous generations of Jews. Here's something like what they said. In this chapter alone, these are the words that they use. We are presumptuous, stiff-necked, forgetful, ungrateful, idolatrous, blasphemous, needy, incapable, fat, lazy, disobedient, rebellious, law-breaking, prophet murderers evil, disobedient, stubborn, wicked, sinful, totally stressed out because of what I've done to my own life people. That's the way we are. Would you use that to describe yourself? Oh, I love this new feature that Facebook has. I can say all about me, and so I say, I'm a stiff-necked prophet murderer, lying, fat, lazy, disobedient. Would you do that? How many people would respond to your friend request if you did that? (laughs) Not very many, right? See, these people came to the point where they recognized that they were in the place that they were in because of decisions that they had made. Because of the decisions as a people that they had made time and time and time and time again. And they said this, today we repent. See, that's when you know, back to chapter 8, you know revival has really began, right? When repentance takes place. It's one thing to have a big emotional experience and no change to happen, it's another thing when we say, I recognize based on the truth that I've read and understanding who I am and who God is that I need to repent, that I need to move in a different direction. And that's what they said. We're going to move in a new direction. Your way is the best way. Our way has not worked out so good as seen in our prayer. We're going to move in a different way. Real prayer always involves radical repentance. It always involves radical repentance. In fact, I would say to you that it should probably be true of your life that rarely should you pray where you're not also repenting. Now, that assumes that you're as bad as I am. I, I, I recognize that. But but for me, I recognize that really there aren't too many times that I pray when I don't at least have to tag on, God, I recognize this in me. Forgive me of that. I I really want to move in that direction and As Paul said in in, in Romans, I I know I should go in that direction, but so often I'm moving in this direction, and I I recognize who I am. Real prayer always involves radical repentance. Now, there are many forms of counterfeit or false repentance. Repentance that on the surface seems genuine, but it's really fake. And I want to give you four of them uh, as we wind things down this morning. Here's what a prayer of confession or a prayer of repentance is not. Okay? And you see if you're guilty of one or all of these. (laughs) I, as I was preparing this week, I thought, wow, it'd be great if I was just guilty of one of them. Then I could just work on one of them. And then I looked at all four of them, and I thought, well, at times in my life, I've done all four. Now, maybe that'll be true of you as well. A prayer of repentance, first of all, is not mere confession. It's not mere confession. It's not simply saying, like, Justin and Jordan did when they were little boys. Kayla, she's a perfect child. She doesn't do this. But Justin and Jordan, on a regular basis, I think I've told you this. They used to do something that was evil, demonic, bad. And they would simply say to us, I remember Jordan the first time he did it. I could still I could play the video back in my head. He went, sorry. <laughs> it's like that. And I said, sorry? He goes, yeah, sorry. Now, Can we go throw the ball? That's mere confession. I'm sorry. I have no intention of doing anything differently in the future. Nothing. I have no conviction whatsoever about what I did. I just simply recognize, back to what I said in our introduction, I just simply recognize that I got caught doing something. And what I've learned as a four-year-old is that if I just say, sorry, that everything just goes away. And like my dad said to me, and I vowed never to say to my kids, I said to him, sorry doesn't cut it. I don't want to hear just sorry. That's mere confession. One pastor described it this way. He said, this kind of mere confession does not get down to the level of the heart, the core, the center, the motives, the identity. People who are good at mere confession oftentimes know a lot of Scripture, have a perfectly functioning conscience, and if you walk up and say, that was a sin, they'll say, yes, that was a sin. And they keep doing it. Now maybe they'll white-knuckle it for a while, he said, Make it a few days, weeks, months, but eventually they go back to the same thinking and acting as they had previously. They're stuck in this absolute rut, driving around in this continual cul-de-sac of life, making no forward spiritual progress. This is confession that never moves to change, to repentance. Repentance is when you stop doing what you're doing, not just agreeing that what you're doing is wrong. That's like being on a road and recognizing you've gone in the wrong direction and go, sorry, and you keep going down the road. And somebody in the back seat's going, whoa, sorry, stop the car, right? Move in a new direction. Those of us that are guilty of mere confession find ourselves doing that on a regular basis. Sorry, keep going down the road. Number two is worldly sorrow. This is an emotional response to our sin with no real change attached to it. It's often characterized by uncontrollable tears, but no change. I mean, it could be just a, oh, and, and I, boy, I've seen it in my home. I won't tell you which child, but I've seen it. Oh, the tears, the disappointment. I can't believe that I did that. And then when they get the desired response from the rest of the family, guess what? They move right on in the direction that they were going again. I have any intention of getting off. 2 Corinthians 7.10 says, For the sorrow that is according to the will of God produces a, a repentance without regret. That means when I repent... I don't regret that I repented. I recognize that my repentance needed to happen, and I'm moving in a new direction. There is no change. Worldly sorrow, we feel sorry for a little while, but then it wears off and we go back to doing or being what we were before we had that emotional meltdown. Number three is a self-righteous repentance. This is where you clearly see the sins of everyone else. Anybody guilty of that? Don't raise your hand. Some of you are. You conveniently neglect everything that pertains to you. I love talking about other people's sin. It's great. I don't know, maybe that's why I do what I do, right? Because I can stand up here and you listen to me as I talk about things that I think I'm fairly transparent with you and I admit that I'm the same kind of sinner, but this is self-righteous confession. I love sitting around talking about the things that you do that violate the very holiness of God while it's very easy for me to neglect those things in my own life. It it reminds me of what Jesus said in Luke chapter 18 and verse 9 when he talked about uh, the parable of the Pharisee who stood and as he was praying this to himself, he said, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. I'm not a swindler. I'm not unjust. I'm not an adulterer. Or even like this tax collector who's next to me. What is he doing next to me? I fast twice a week. I pay my tithes of all that you bless me with. I'm really something special. I'm an arrogant person, but I'm really something special. I love verse 14, which says, but the tax collector standing some distance away was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast saying, God, be merciful. Be merciful. To me, a sinner. Jesus said as he ended that that parable in verse 14, I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Biblical repentance is not confessing the sins of everyone else while forgetting your own. And lastly, biblical repentance is not religious repentance. Tim Keller, the pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City, and if you ever get a chance and you're up in New York City and need a church to go to on a Sunday, go hear Tim Keller preach. One of the most brilliant men uh, in our world today, I believe. He wrote this. Religious repentance at its core has a poor motivation. It says things like this. I want God to like me, so I'll repent so he'll like me more. Not knowing that God already loves you. While we were sinners, he loved you, Romans 5.8 says. But God demonstrated his love to us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Religious repentance says if I do good, he'll give me stuff. If I do bad stuff, he'll do bad stuff to me. He'll punish me. Let me tell you, if you're a Christ follower this morning, God does not punish you. Romans 8.1 says there is now no condemnation to him who believes, to him who is trusted in Christ alone as his Savior. God does discipline us. He disciplines us for the purpose of sanctifying us so he makes us more like him. But he doesn't punish us. The religious person says, I want to use God to get blessed. So I'm going to pray and repent in such a way as to manipulate him so he'll be happy with me and bless me. Tim Keller goes on to say, not realizing that when God calls you to repentance, it's because God wants to give you himself as your greatest treasure, your highest joy, as the center of your life. The reason for which you were made is to be connected to that God. True biblical repentance is simply this. It is agreeing with God about my sin and humbly moving in the direction that puts me in a position to fulfill God's purpose for my life. Let me ask you this morning as we close, um, where are you this morning? I mean, if you had to categorize your life, and I decided this week that I'd give you three categories that you can put your life into as it relates to prayer and repentance. Um, I can say that probably all of us safely fall into one of these three categories. Number one, you're here this morning and you're walking with God and you're clean. You're clean. You know that as God knows your heart, if all of a sudden he were to flip a video screen in heaven and start playing every thought that you've thought since I started speaking, in fact, let's even go back for the last month, and he played it on the screen, you'd go, I'm clean. I'm clean before God. There have been some times when I have violated His holiness, when I have violated the very thing that I knew to be truth and to do the things that I was supposed to do. I repented, I confessed, and I'm here this morning and I'm clean. You could be in that category. Number two, you could be in a category that says, I remember a time when I walked with God and I was clean. I'm not this morning, but I remember a time when I was there, when I was really walking with God and I was clean. And then number three... Number three, that category says, I've never been in a right relationship with God. And so I've never enjoyed the freedom that comes from being clean, from understanding what true biblical repentance is. These people that we're reading about and we've been studying about for the last several months, they have found out what it looks like to really repent biblically, to move in a, in a new direction and to stand clean before a holy God. They found out what their life could be When they repented, when they changed, and they did things God's way. It reminds me of one of the penitent psalms, Psalm uh, 32. You remember David and his sin with Bathsheba, and in Psalm 32 and in Psalm 51, they are considered penitent uh, psalms. They're psalms of repentance. David said this in verse 1 of Psalm 32, Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed meaning what? Happy? Happy? It's oftentimes a good translation there. Happy is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Happy is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Maybe today, right now, the Spirit of God is speaking to you about an area in your life that you know is inconsistent with who you are in Christ. And I don't know what that might be, and I'm not even going to speculate what that might be this morning, but you know. It's that thing that steals your joy, it's that thing that causes you to lose sleep at night. It's that area in your life which has brought you shame and guilt. It's that habit that you have in your life that's stealing your strength. And it may be even stealing your life this morning. I want to challenge you this morning to repent. I love verse 5. I love verse 5 and what David said. Here's what David said. He said, then I acknowledged my sin to you. And I didn't cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord. And what happened? David said, you forgave the guilt of my sin. That's what can happen. And I challenge you uh, this morning to do that in your life. To acknowledge who you are before a holy God that that demands of us that we walk in holiness as his children. No forward progress is going to be made in the Christian life without ongoing biblical repentance. It'll never happen. And you can be here this morning, and you can be hiding it from everybody. You'll never be called in front of TV cameras to confess your sin. The effect is exactly the same. It thwarts you and I from being everything that God has called us to be when we play around with sin. And we don't acknowledge it for what it is before a holy God. Let's pray.